The Gospel reading is from Luke chapter 24. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So we went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Through the written word and the spoken word, may we better know your living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Late in 2019, I began to develop a Lent course with the title of the sermon for today, Developing Resilient Faith in an Uncertain World. And oh, if I'd only known how relevant it would become. As it turned out, I managed to get two sessions of the course done before we had to cancel it altogether as the first national lockdown happened in the UK. That was announced on the 23rd of March in 2020. And at that point, we were still getting to grips with Zoom and Facebook Live and all those things that have become a mainstay of how we do church now. But at that time, we were just trying to figure out what was happening with the pandemic. And so that course was never completed. Uh, but this topic of how to build resilient faith in an uncertain world is one that has been with me for many years. 
And it's one I think is particularly relevant for us, of course, in this last year and a half, and even as we begin to anticipate emerging from the pandemic, as we continue to navigate an uncertain world. And my own focus on this topic started a number of years ago, as I said, it came from my own experiences of feeling disappointed with God when life didn't shape up as I expected it should. And I'd argue as I'd been told to expect it um, in much of the church tradition that I'd grown up in. Throughout my life in the church, there was this underlying message that if I was a good Christian, did my best to follow Jesus, well, then life was going to go well. I could expect a successful career and a happy marriage and family life and good health and so on, because God's blessings follow those who live a good life, right? And yet, probably like many of us, that wasn't exactly how I found life going. Many of the good things of life that I'd come to expect God to deliver didn't seem to materialize, and it left me feeling confused and frustrated and angry. As I saw it, God had not delivered. He had not lived up to his end of the bargain, whatever bargain I'd imagined. And as I began to talk with others, and often as I was mentoring or pastoring others, I found I wasn't alone in this sense of disappointment with God. I remember I was once told by a young woman that her singleness was the greatest challenge to her faith. She simply could not understand why a good God would allow her to remain single when she sincerely wanted to be married. It was and it is a completely fair question. And I've heard many similar stories of I expected this and God didn't deliver and I'm disappointed, I'm frustrated, I don't understand what's happening. And unlike circumstances in life when one would be expected and even given permission and space to grieve, such as the death of a loved one or the end of a marriage, this sense of disappointment with God was most often caused by an accumulation of smaller disappointments, such as singleness or a less than satisfying marriage, a lack of career fulfillment, struggle finding purpose in life, or perhaps dealing with chronic uh, physical or mental health issues. And as these disappointments, these struggles pile up when that good life that we expected doesn't come and it seems like prayers are going unanswered, it can begin to undermine our faith in God, our confidence in his goodness. And I think it doesn't help that in the church, we love to celebrate the victory stories. We probably all experienced hearing the testimony of when the longed for marriage partner is found or the dreamed about baby is born, the long suffered illness is healed. And those are all rightfully things to rejoice in, but they don't tell the whole story of the Christian life. Because the church is often not so good at acknowledging that life is also full of challenges and difficulties that don't always have an end in sight. After all, we really wouldn't think about inviting someone to share their testimony when they're in the midst of a trial or share a genuine story of wrestling with God and not having any answers. We prefer those victory stories that we've already tied up with a neat bow that we can say answered prayer, tick, and isn't God good? But the Bible does tell those honest stories. The Bible acknowledges and gives space for the very breadth of human experience. In fact, the Bible is much more honest often than the church is. The Bible normalizes both joy and mourning. The Bible gives us example after example of people being real with God and God being real with them in all the diverse experiences of life, in the happy and the sad, in the rejoicing and the mourning, in the exciting moments and the really difficult ones. And that's why it is so important that we read the whole of the Bible, not just those few select portions, 
Because I believe when we do, we begin to see and it can prepare us for an uncertain world, give us tools to develop resilient faith through its honesty and its transparency. And so today we're going to go back to basics a bit. We're going to look at the Bible and we're going to talk about prayer. So we're going to look at this story in Matthew. We're going to talk a bit about prayer. We're going to talk a bit about the Psalms, especially the Psalms of Lament. And as we do so, I hope we're going to get a bit of that realness and perhaps help us gain some perspective to see that honesty in scripture, that realness, and how it can help us develop that resilient faith that functions even in the most challenging times. So let's start with that reading from Luke 24. And if you've got a Bible with you, crack it open and read along. And I hope last week you had Charles with you. I know not all of you will remember him, but it's one of my enduring memories of in town, similar to what Pete shared in the beginning, what he remembers from his childhood, because Charles began each and every sermon by saying, if you've got a Bible with you, open it up to you. And he's right. Just don't be content to just take in what I say. Look at it for yourself. See what the Lord may have for you today. But we're going to look at Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. And this is the story of these two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus after Jesus's death. And they're confused and they're wondering at all that they have seen happen over the last several days. Jesus's trial, his suffering and his death, and now these rumors of his resurrection, which might have seemed like quite a cruel joke. They were in distress. And they were probably reviewing the situation over and over again, trying to make sense of it all, looking for that bit of information that might give them some hope, much like we've probably done a lot over this past year and a half throughout this pandemic. But as these disciples are walking and talking, Jesus joins them. But as far as they're concerned, he's a stranger. The text tells us that they were kept from recognizing him. And the two disciples welcome Jesus into their conversation, and he asks them what they're talking about. And they're rather incredulous that he doesn't know, much as we might say to someone who asked us today what was happening in the world. We might say to them, have you been living under a rock? And in Jesus's case at this point, sort of, he had been. But I love how Jesus responds to them. He simply asks them, what things? He's encouraging them to tell him what they already know, to rehearse their story, and to perhaps find some answers for themselves, to talk it through. Obviously, Jesus knew what was happening. It was all about him, but he doesn't just hand it over to them. He is, in a sense, encouraging them to process all that they've experienced, to see how God is at work within it. And so they describe Jesus to himself. They say he's a prophet, powerful in word and deed, and they go on to relay the story of his crucifixion and the rumors of his resurrection, as well as their hopes that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. You can almost hear the disappointment in their voices, though, because Jesus had not turned up in the way they'd expected. He hadn't come and redeemed Israel in the way they thought he would. And at this point in the story, Jesus seems to have had enough. He tells them that they're foolish for not connecting what has happened to what scripture said would happen to him, what happened to Jesus. And so he proceeds to explain it to them, starting from Moses and through all the prophets. And yet still, they don't recognize him. It was only as they sat down to dinner and broke bread that these disciples were able to recognize Jesus. And can you imagine what that would have been like? What a surprise to realize that all the rumors of the resurrection were true and Jesus was right there with them. So as we reflect on this story, what might that have to tell us about developing resilient faith? 
Well, I do think there is something quite significant to the fact that these two disciples didn't recognize Jesus right away. I think we often miss the ways that God is at work in our lives. We often feel disappointed with him because we've developed expectations of how life should go. Sometimes, again, encouraging, encouraged by that teacher teaching in the church and definitely in our culture that you deserve the best. And if you just do the right things, good things will come to you. And because our lives don't measure up to those expectations that we've developed, we may miss what God is actually doing. And what ways might we be missing Jesus at work today because we're so distracted or distressed by our own disappointments and frustrations that things are not going according to expectations? And please don't misunderstand me. This is not a get over yourself or pull yourself up by your bootstraps admonition. But it is an encouragement to look out for what the Bible tells us about who God is and how he works amongst his people and to realize that that might be quite different than the expectations we've developed. Because one of the difficulties of developing expectations is they can blind us to the reality of the world around us. If we've developed specific expectations of what a good life looks like or how we expect God to answer prayer in a particular way, we can often actually miss out on the good life that is on offer or how God is answering our prayers. Don't get me wrong, sometimes God is at work in our lives and answering our prayers in ways that are so obvious it may as well be a neon sign. Sometimes he does exactly meet our expectations. But more often I've found it's like Tim Keller has said that God always answers your prayers in precisely the way you want them to be answered if you only knew everything that he knew. We don't know everything God knows, but I do believe that we can trust he's good that he answers our prayers in the way we would pray if we knew everything that he knows. And I also think that sometimes we have expectations of how God should work and how he should show up in the world that simply aren't in evidence in the Bible. Or perhaps they're cherry-picked from a few select verses taken out of context that support our chosen worldview. I've certainly come to realize that many of my expectations of how life should go, the good life that I expected God to grant me if I was a good Christian, with little more than a health and wealth gospel. And the disciples on the road to Emmaus were disappointed because they expected Jesus to come and redeem Israel in an obvious and decisive manner. And instead, Jesus came not only to redeem Israel, but the whole world. They were expecting a military leader and they got a servant king. And so God turning up, answering our prayers may look different than we expect, but it's no less true. And when we look to the stories of the whole of the Bible, we'll begin to recognize that we should expect a life that has ups and downs, joys and sorrows, but to have confidence that God is with us throughout it all, even when we don't see him, even when we don't recognize him right away. So that's one step to encouraging a resilient faith, keeping our eyes open for Jesus and how he may show up in ways that we don't expect and looking to the whole of the Bible to see that broad picture of life and all its joys and sorrows and how God is there in the midst of it. And the next step or the another thing you can do, it's prayer. And I know this mo- might sound obvious and also what you hear every single pastor tell you, but the longer I've been a Christian and the longer I've been in ministry, the more I realize there's just no substitute for these two basics, the Bible and prayer. And when it comes to prayer, I think the most important thing is learning to be real in prayer. 
in the early days of lockdown, I read a book um, by a guy called Pete Gregg, um, who runs the 24-7 prayer movement. It's really all around the world. He's based here in the UK. And this book was titled, very helpfully, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. And within it, he offers three really simple points for how to pray. Prayer is essential to our lives as Christians, and yet I know how easy it can be to get out of practice, to let it slip out of our lives. We worry about not doing it right or being disappointed when we don't see our prayers answered, and so we just sometimes forget to ask. But that's why I keep coming back to these three simple points that Pete offered in his book. And the first is just to keep it simple. I think a lot of people are put off prayer because they're worried about saying the wrong things or saying things in the wrong way, but we really can keep it simple. I mean, think about the Lord's Prayer, that model of prayer that Jesus gave to the disciples when they asked him to teach them to pray. It starts with praise and worship, just honoring God for who he is. Then ask God to come and make the world reflect heaven. And then ask for some of the basic things we need and things we want, forgiveness, basic necessities of life, guidance, and then ends again with praise for God. It's a really simple model of prayer when we think about it. But again, I think one of the most helpful points is the second one that Pete made, and that is to keep it real, to be honest with God. If we're only saying what we think God wants to hear, we may not really be praying. Again, the Bible is often way more honest than the church. In the church, we can be guilty of trying to put on a happy face all the time, thinking if we're Christians and we trust God, we need to be happy. But the Bible is also full of lament and mourning and crying out to God when things are tough. And we'll look at that a little more closely when we look at the Psalms. So keep it real. Be honest with God. Be honest with yourself. Tell it like it is. And then his third point was to keep it up, even when it's not easy. And particularly when we aren't sure God hears us or if he's answering our prayers, but we keep at it even if it's the simplest and most honest prayer imaginable, even if it's full of frustration and anger and maybe even a few curse words. God hears us, God answers. And I think sometimes we struggle with prayer because we misunderstand it as a tool to get what we want from God rather than a conversation, rather than listening for what he may be saying to us. Justin Welby, who's the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the church that I'm a part of, recently said, prayer is not about sending requests into the sky. It's about allowing God to make us more like Jesus Christ. So I think if we can put these points together, keep it simple, keep it real, and keep it up, along with seeing prayer as a way to make us more like Jesus, it might just begin to reshape our expectations of prayer and of God and make our faith a bit more resilient. And again, if you need some more being real, let's go back to the Bible. Let's use the Psalms. That's what they're there for. The Psalms are so full of honesty of both lament and joy. Athanasius, one of the early church leaders, saw the Psalms as having the ability to suit every situation. He said, whatever your particular need or trouble, from this same book, you can select a form of words to it. So that you do not merely hear and then pass on, but learn the way to remedy your ill. He understood the Psalms don't just offer um, a place for us to think about our problems in the correct perspective, but also offer a solution. And theologian Walter Brueggemann said, Psalms may function as voices of faith in the actual life of the believing community. The Psalms may give words to the things that we might be sometimes afraid to say. 
And I do love that in town regularly includes a psalm in the worship service. It's a practice that's fallen out of favor in a lot of the church, and I do think we're lesser for it. Um, N.T. Wright argues that praying and singing the psalms has the power to transform us. And he declares that the practice changes the way we understand some of the deepest elements of who we are, or rather who, where, when, and what we are. Because when it comes to building resilient faith and being real, the Psalms of Lament in particular give us space for that. 40% of the Psalms are actually pure lament Psalms. And when you add in other Psalms that have some portion of lament, 70% of the Psalms contain lament. There's whole books of lament. Um, within scripture. And the Psalms are the Israelites being real with God, often in ways that are rather shocking, especially to our modern ears. But they're being honest, they're being real. And including lament Psalms in corporate worship has some really practical benefits. I mean, first of all, not everyone shows up to church on Sunday in a cheery mood. Um, that might be some of you this morning. And if you do show up in a good mood, Reading a lament psalm as part of worship can help you begin to empathize with those who are not. And this makes lament a corporate rather than an individualistic activity. It begins to normalize lament and mourning. And we're called to mourn with those who mourn after all. And it can go a long way in building resilient faith when worshipers realize that being a Christian doesn't mean having to be happy clappy all the time. And I messed with your regular progression through the Psalms by asking Matt to include Psalm 13 in our order of service today. It's one of the classic lament Psalms and it shows us the typical format of a lament. The Psalmist begins by directly crying out to God saying, how long have you forgotten me? And you know, it was really honest and real. And then they move on with their request, look on me, answer me. And then finally, in the end, moves on to expression of confidence in God. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the praise of the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And I think that's often how we move through lament in our own lives. We start out in this place of just dire situation, feeling like we have nothing. And as we let that out, as we're real with God, we may be able to come back to a place of praise. Although not all of the Psalms of Lament include this confidence in God's goodness. But as the Psalms offer us space to lament, to be real and worship, and to be real and to be honest in our worship, we include them in our corporate worship, as well as looking to them in our own Bible reading, we're reminded that it shouldn't be a surprise when life is challenging, when it's difficult, because we see it reflected all the time in the Bible. And it also reminds us that we're not alone. We're not the only ones who have wondered where God is in the midst of our difficulties and struggles. So how do we develop resilient faith in an uncertain world? I really do think it is by getting back to those basics, going back to God's word, the Bible, in all its diversity and honesty and spending time in the Psalms, see the pain and the joy expressed by the Israelites, read the gospels and see the excitement and the skepticism of the disciples. Talk to God, keeping it simple and real and keeping at it even when it gets hard. Even if all you can say is help, let time in the word and in prayer make you more like Jesus as you just lay it all out there in front of God. Even in non-pandemic times, we live in a world that's full of uncertainty and often disappointments. 
And yet I'm convinced that God meets us in that place, that Jesus walks alongside us. Sometimes we just need to open our eyes a bit more, be willing to shift our perspective and our expectations in order to see just where God is in the midst of it all. And if we can do that, I'm convinced that our faith becomes more resilient, that we don't get tossed to and fro by our ever-changing circumstances and by the ways of our emotion. We can trust in God's goodness. We can recall his goodness to us in the past and hope for it in the future. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess that we often find ourselves wavering in our faith. When times get tough, when we can't perceive you at work, when we become disappointed, when your church fails and hurts people, when we fail and hurt one another. But Lord, you've given us the resources that we need. You have given us your word and you listen to us when we pray. So we ask today that you would give us that motivation, that strength to invest more deeply in our time with you, that you would give us eyes to see the ways that you are at work in our lives and in our world. And may that give us a renewed sense of confidence in your goodness to us and build resiliency into our faith. Amen.